Live and local, this is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Open for the end zone. It's a Saints touchdown. It's time for two hours of the best sports talk on the airwaves. Here's your host, the Blonde Bomber, Jordy Holtberg. Welcome into the Jordy Holtberg Show. I am Dawson Eiserloh, filling in for Jordy here on this Monday after Masters weekend, the Easter holiday. Uh, There was plenty going on, and we've got a great show for you lined up here today. I'm on the other side of the camera that I usually am. James Mesh is over there in the producer's studio, and uh, he'll be talking with us, of course, from time to time here on the show as well. We've got a couple of guests lined up. It'll be Sean Fazan first up, who covers the Saints and Pelicans for Fox 8. We'll get his you know, comments on what was not a great weekend for the New Orleans Pelicans. A uh, couple of opportunities by the wayside. And then we'll have Zach Nagy on in the second hour, and he'll cover everything LSU. So we'll talk a little bit of LSU women's basketball, of course, coming off of a national title and still kind of uh, having a lot of things going on. It hasn't stopped after the title. They've got some transfer rumors and everything else. We'll talk that with him. He's also been covering spring football for LSU, so we'll get a little bit of an update on Brian Kelly's team and maybe ask him a little bit about the baseball team, of course, still uh, ranked amongst the top teams in the country. But other than that, we're going to talk about the Masters. One of my favorite sports weekends of the year is Masters weekend. It did not disappoint. It was a little bit of a, of a strange weekend at Augusta National. So I'll give some of my thoughts there. Um, and Cajun baseball and softball, really hot right now. Big weekends for both of those teams. Um, they kind of turn things around in a way. Uh, the baseball team certainly turned things around. Softball team continued some of the momentum that they had already developed. Um, we'll also hit again on a little bit of LSU baseball with Zach and then um, just in addition to that on its own. But we'll start with the Masters. And, you know, I thought it was a tremendous weekend overall, but it was certainly not the way we maybe would have expected it to play out. It started on Thursday and we saw some low numbers be put on the board. The conditions were ideal. Brooks Kepka was a name that I mentioned to RP3. Now, I didn't give, if any of you heard RP3 and company this morning, I didn't give Ray a hard time, but I should have because I told him Brooks Kepka was a name to watch out for. And he told me that that was ridiculous. It was my Florida State bias showing. But lo and behold, Kepka put his name on the leaderboard at the end of day one. We didn't have a show on Friday to kind of recap that, but Kepka would remain in the mix throughout um, and would actually be kind of the favorite heading into the weekend, the way he was playing was fully healthy and had kind of turned things around. Um, However, when it got to Saturday and the weather kind of came in, we knew that bad weather was coming. I was surprised, to be honest, that they got through as much of Friday's round as they did. So therefore, they were able to resume the second round and play a good bit of the third. And Kepka started to struggle. We saw John Rahm, the Spaniard, kind of come in and rise up that leaderboard a little bit, put a few birdies on the card. Uh, Then that weather happened. It was a weird scene. You had trees falling at Augusta National. Thankfully, no one was injured. Um, And they had to go ahead and delay the finish of the third round. For a while, it looked like we were going to get a Monday finish. However, they were able to kind of move some tee times around, go ahead and finish the third round, and then have the fourth round in its entirety on a traditional Masters Sunday. And it was Brooks Kepka just fading slowly on Sunday. He never really had his very first tee shot was about four fairways over. And, uh, you know, I, from there I said, whoa, this, this could be rough. 
Um, he just he battled, but he never seemed to get in a rhythm. He had a couple of birdies on the back nine, but by that point, John Rahm had made uh, quite had, had created quite the lead, and John Rahm was just fantastic. You know, played well early in the weekend, but was a few shots behind Brooks. But when it came to Saturday and Sunday, um, he made a charge, and he was just the most consistent golfer by far. Um, this isn't something that was completely out of left field. John Rahm has been playing well. U.S. Open champion, of course, a couple of years ago. And, you know, I think he's one of those emerging stars on the tour. And the tour's in a different kind of place right now. Tiger, of course, was forced to withdraw after the third round. Um, And, you know, that was disappointing to see, especially if you saw some of the images that came away from that, just kind of how in pain Tiger looked, kind of hobbling around. Um, but with Tiger, of course, you know, and this hasn't been, this isn't a new thing. Tiger hasn't quite been himself for a while now. But, you know, that era is kind of fading away um, and a new era of young stars is coming in. And, you know, something I discussed on RP3 and company this morning was, you know, it's not like you were going to be able to replace Tiger Woods with another Tiger. Um, he's a once in a generation, I mean, maybe once in a lifetime type talent. So instead, we've had a nice crop of young golfers that include Scotty Scheffler, last year's Masters champion, John Rahm, who won yesterday, Jordan Spieth, who's been around for a while but still you know, fairly young on this tour, Justin Thomas, among others. And I thought we got a great look at that. Brooks Koepka is another one of those names. Now, he has made himself a little bit more controversial by you know, joining the likes of the Live Tour. Now, I, I got the sense, and I don't know if you all watching got the sense, that it feels like maybe Brooks is, is ready to return to the tour or will be ready at some point. Of course, the avenues of whether or not that's going to be possible, that still remains to be seen with the tour and live and kind of the rocky relationship that that has been so far. Um, but Brooks Kepka felt like he might be ready to come back to the tour. He didn't wear his team logos or anything like that. With all that being said, I think it was kind of a... You know, it was the continued progression of this changing of the guard, uh, where we have this new young batch of stars that are all really good. Now, none of them are going to single-handedly take over the game, I wouldn't think, the way Tiger did in the 2000s. But I do think you could have some very uh, impressive battles between John Rahm, Scotty Scheffler, um, Jordan Spieth, and those types of guys. And I think the game of golf's in a very good spot. So that's kind of my one of my main takeaways from the weekend and you know what was an exciting tournament and you know a little bit atypical as I mentioned with some of the weather issues that plagued much of the tournament but they were able to get it in in 4 days and for that that's impressive Augusta National of course um, one of the best grounds crews just such pristine keeping of that course and some of the water it took you'd have thought that they maybe wouldn't have had it ready in time on Sunday it played well and it played fine and there were some birdies out there You know, that was the next storyline on Sunday was Jordan Spieth and Phil Mickelson, who just made these late charges. And Mickelson, it really came out of nowhere. Now, Phil, of course, kind of put himself in the spotlight heading to the Live Tour. It was an ugly divorce, so to speak, between him and the PGA Tour, him and some of the players on the PGA Tour. Um, He did not participate in the Masters last year. He kind of felt like it would have been a distraction And he returned this year, and I don't think there was much expectations around him at all because not only had he not been playing on the PGA Tour, but he hadn't been playing very well on the Live Tour. I mean, was not in, in, you know, in the final groupings or anything like that, not competing for wins over there. And he comes over and plays moderately well in the first couple rounds. He's kind of hanging below par. And I think it was one of those, 
you know, he wasn't making front page headlines, but everyone was saying, wow, look at Phil. He's playing pretty well. He's playing better than Tiger. He's playing better than a lot of guys. And then all of a sudden on Sunday, he makes an absolute charge. He shoots 65. He made a bunch of birdies on the back nine, actually tied his career best round at Augusta National. And he does this all at age 52 and finishes tied for third. So that was impressive and really, again, just kind of came out of nowhere with, with what Phil Mickelson was able to accomplish. Jordan Spieth also made a nice run. Now, it was a little less surprising from Spieth because, of course, he has been a guy who has been in the mix in majors for a long time now. Um, but it was an instance where both of those guys were just a little bit too far back to really make that charge, um, make Rom something he had to worry about. Now, Kepka kind of faded back to the pack, and if Rom would have done the same, then we could have had a really interesting storyline where maybe you'd have been in the you know mix for a playoff to take place at Augusta between maybe Spieth, Mickelson, Kepka, Rom, or some combination. That didn't work out that way because John Rom just kind of handled the pressure and, and never really faded back. But you know, overall, I thought Kepka's battle with Rom, you know, getting back to that, and and John Rom becoming, by the way, the first Spaniard to win both the U.S. Open and the Masters. You know, we heard his comments about Seve, of course, the famed Spanish golfer who kind of paved the way. And you know, it was really interesting to see. I I wish that that would have turned more into a battle between Kepka and Rom than it did. Um, because quite honestly, Rom just outclassed Brooks on Sunday, and, and, and Brooks didn't have his A game. His comments afterwards, I thought, were a little bit interesting because you know he said that he felt like he played pretty well, but that a couple of breaks didn't go his way here and there, um, you know, and that a couple of things maybe could have been, you know, that could have that maybe would have changed his round. I didn't necessarily get that that opinion from things because I thought he just didn't play nearly as well as he did the first couple of rounds. And again, that first tee shot. Kind of set the tone when he hit it over the trees into the left fairway. Now, it didn't end up becoming a disaster hole. He actually hit it so far left that he had a lane. But um, I didn't think Kepka played nearly as well as I expected him to in the majors. Uh, excuse me, in the final round of that major championship. And, you know, the other thing about this was the the PGA versus Live battle that's that's constantly taking place, I think. That's not going away, uh, at least for the time being. And I guess you can chalk this one up to a win for the PGA guys. Um, In some ways, they won the tournament, John Rahm did. But in general, the Live guys showed up and they played well. And a lot of them made the cut. Uh, I believe there was 19 of them in total. You had a a few of them in the mix. Of course, none bigger than Kepka, who had a real chance to win this thing. Um, But then, of course, Phil puts his name up there. Patrick Reed also finished in the top five. So... You know, a lot of these guys that we kind of wrote off, we said, oh, they're going to play on the live tour. They're not going to be competitive, 54 holes. They don't know, you know, they don't want to be a part of, of the, the greatest competition in golf anymore, which is the PGA Tour. Um, they're going to come back and they're not going to be able to compete in the majors because they're not playing in 72-hole events. Well, I think we have to pause on that narrative. And look, I don't think it's some bigger thing. The other funny thing about it is that it's not like these guys were born and raised on the live tour. They were great PGA Tour professionals before they left. But the narrative that everyone who left for live was washed up has kind of taken a bit of a pause. And I think, look, Phil Mickelson, you had every right to argue that he was washed up. There was nothing really that led you to believe that he was going to play well in this tournament, but he did. And now Patrick Reed and, and Brooks Kepka may be a little bit less surprising there. Those guys are much closer to their primes. Um, I'd argue Brooks may still be in it. 
Of course, for Kepka, it was a matter of the injuries, and that's something he talked about every time he got in front of a mic, essentially, this weekend when he was asked numerous times, you know, what, what was the difference for you coming back and competing? And he said he's just healthy for the first time in a couple of years. So, you know, overall, it was really interesting to see those dynamics play out. I thought the coverage did a good job not harping on the live thing too much. Um, you know, there was some some funny clips of whether Jim Nance made a subtle jab at Liv or not. You know, it, whether he did that on purpose, it seemed like he did. Uh, it was certainly funny if that was what he was trying to do um, about the crosswalk and calling it the CW, which, of course, is the network that Liv is, you know, in negotiations with and, and going to be broadcasted on. But, um, you know, I thought it didn't overshadow the tournament in any way. The Masters was still the Masters, and I think that's how it should be and how it will remain. Um, you know, those guys are going to show up. Now, of course, some of them are going to start losing eligibility in the major championships. That was a main topic of conversation. Does, you know, the PGA or, or does the world golf rankings rather maybe eventually accept live and, you know, start to incorporate those into the world golf ranking point system for now they don't. And so a lot of those guys that don't have exemptions are going to fall out. Remember guys like Phil and Brooks, They've won the Masters. They have lifetime exemptions there. They have other exemptions into the other majors because of being previous time champions and things of that nature. So those guys you don't have to worry about. But some of the other guys who left for live, some of the guys like Cam Smith, uh, you know, those guys have to start thinking about where they are in the World Golf Rankings. And if they want to continue to play in major championships, they might not have that opportunity simply because they're already going to drop out of the top 50, not being able to earn points over and live. And again, if some of those exemptions run out and they don't have any previous champion exemptions, they're not going to be in the field. So that is something to monitor moving forward. we got to take a timeout. But when we come back, James and I are going to talk a little bit of the NBA. And the Pelicans did not have a very sparkling weekend. But there was a couple other really interesting storylines on what was the final weekend of the NBA regular season. That's next right here on The Game. This is the Jordy Holberg Show on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. The world-famous Angola Prison Rodeo is coming back, and the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, has your free tickets. Text RODEO to 337-283-8100. That's R-O-D-E-O to 337-283-8100. The Angola Prison Rodeo returns April 22nd and 23rd, and you can see all the excitement, bull riding, wild horse racing, and convict poker. Text RODEO to 337-283-8100 to watch the world-famous Angola Prison Rodeo, courtesy of Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update, presented by Tibbs Trailers here on The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back into the Jordy Holtberg Show. Once again, Dawson Iserlow in for Jordy here on this Monday. I want to remind you that we are broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. So the NBA, um, it was a, you know, it's probably kind of what the NBA had in mind when they created the play-in tournament was to have all of these games kind of end up impacting seeding and different things in the two conferences, respectively. I've already mentioned a lot on RP3 and Company and footnotes. I'm not a fan of the play-in tournament. I don't think it's necessary for 20 of your league's 30 teams to be involved in some type of postseason play. 
But when you see a weekend that took place the way that this one did, you can then kind of sit there and go, well, this is probably what they had in mind. Now, that doesn't mean everyone was playing their best guys and trying to win games because plenty of the seedings had already been locked up and decided. And we saw quite a few interesting results. And James, I want to bring you in now and, and talk about some of the things that we saw take place because there was an, you know, a guy who's been in Miami forever as like a borderline, you know, extra cheerleader on the bench, a guy just who's essentially just a locker room leader. Practically. He went out and basically had one of the best games of his career, to, to call it a career, which I thought was awesome that they let him do that in Udonis Haslam. Um, he, among Peyton Pritchard with Boston, I mean, there was just a bunch of individual performances from guys who you know don't necessarily get these types of opportunities, and they did for whatever reason, usually being their teams had the seating locked up, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, with Udonis, I don't watch a lot of Heat games to begin with, but I, I swear, in my lifetime, I think I've seen Udonis make like, <laughs> five shots and all five of them were from the baseline in the right. exact same spot they were all like the same exact play when lebron like dished it to him so i was like okay well he had 24 but what really surprised me was his three threes yeah and i think they i think they were back to back and one of them was a bank shot i'm like what's going on and then you had mentioned peyton pritchard from my celtics he had a 30 point triple double he's he's barely six foot and he had 14 rebounds and he shot 16 threes overall, made over half of them. I always knew like he's got like that shooter mentality. Like if he sees even somewhat of an open space to shoot it, he he'll shoot it. I knew he would get the points, but I didn't think he would have that many assists and be able to grab that many rebounds because he doesn't play a lot. But the fact that you had all five starters like sit on the bench for the game, that was no issue. But then a LA Tech guy, La Tech, Kenny Lofton. Yeah. Kenny Lofton went 42 off. points. I mean, a guy who was in the G League like two weeks ago, I think, and has been called up to their roster. And now the funny thing is now, obviously, he's not going to go for 42 in the playoffs, but no. he, he might play some solid minutes in the playoffs for, for Memphis, yeah, given the injury situation and with Steven Adams. Like, they, all of a sudden, that's a guy who might play in the playoffs, who was in the G League just like less than a month ago. Yeah, depending on the matchup, you could see him play a lot of meaningful minutes, especially right. in the playoffs. Because if you have the right matchup, he doesn't have a lot of wear and tear on that body. He's young. He's fresh. And that would yeah. that would give him that would give him so much good experience for him in the future. And he's a big guy. Um, you know, we've seen that a little undersized to play in the middle, but he kind of makes up for it with just with the like, size. And he's got a fully developed skill set too. He's not just a big guy. He has a you know an array of moves. I remember. Look, he played against the Cajuns a good bit because LA Tech and the Cajuns play just about every year in basketball, and he was always a pain for for UL to try to guard. Now, I personally didn't think his game was going to translate to the NBA mm -hmm. because of the style of play differences. And you know, look, this is a small sample size. There's nothing to say yet that he's going to be an established NBA starter at some point, but. It was certainly a good start. Now, I do want to go back to Haslam a little bit because I don't want to disrespect the guy. He did have a, you know, we're, we're both on the younger side of things. Yeah. But in my younger years, and I went back to look at his stats, he had a year where he averaged 12 points a game. He was in double figures. So he was a factor on those Heat teams, but he's been there for now so long in a, basically a non-player role. He's been a player on the roster officially, mm -hmm. but he's essentially been an assistant coach. And so for them to just kind of run him out there one last time with, you know, the stakes were low, but... I thought it was really cool, and you know, it's certainly probably something he's going to be happy that he got to do and go out there and, and kind of prove that hey, maybe he should have been getting some more minutes this whole time. He's been sitting on the bench. It's it's kind of like to me, it's kind of like how it was with Kobe in his last game, where it was like just 
do whatever, dude. Right. This is this is your last game because we've had you be a coach pretty much for a while now. So at this point, you're 42. You you obviously want to be a coach because we've kind of had you be in that role for a little while. You just take up a spot on the roster. But I, I thought it was kind of like that, where it was like, look, just do your thing, dude. This yeah. is gonna be this is gonna be your last good opportunity. So show out and ball. And you know, to my point there, Haslam since 2016-17 has started in a total of three games in that seven-year stretch and has never played in more than 16 games in a season. Mm -hmm. Yet he's been a part of the roster and has continued to sign contract after contract, you know, for the league minimum, of course. They're not like they're breaking the bank, but um, it's been cool for... Every time you see him resign, I've always just sat there and thought, man, it's cool that they keep that guy around. And this is going to be the last ride for him, it looks like. We'll see what the, you know, what the Heat can do in the playoffs. Um, You know, there's not a ton of expectation around them, but... um, it was a wild weekend in in you know finalizing the seedings as we head into the playing tournament, and that leads us to talk about the New Orleans Pelicans, who, you know, look, they had a golden opportunity. We we talked a lot about the scenarios on our various shows last week, what they needed to do to try to get out of the playing tournament, which was still a possibility. But at the very least, you thought, okay, as long as they take care of their business, they beat the Knicks and they beat the Timberwolves. They will be the eighth seed, which the advantage to the eighth seed, of course, you don't have to play in that 9-10 game. You do have to go on the road for your first playing game, but if you win that one, you're in, and if you lose it, you get another chance. So it's a huge advantage to be number eight, and we, we kind of discussed that. They handled their business against the Knicks, who weren't at full strength themselves, and then they head to Minnesota. And, you know, look, some of these teams we mentioned didn't have anything to play for and guys were resting. That was not the case for the Timberwolves because, of course, this was a situation where the winner of this game got the eight seed. Well, the Timberwolves were already a little bit banged up, missing a couple of guys. And then, as the Pelicans take a nice early lead and look like they're going to kind of cruise to a win, you had Rudy Gobert fighting his teammates on the sideline. He gets sent to the locker room and essentially sent home like a kid. Uh, he's no longer a factor. You had players punching walls and breaking their hand in the tunnel for the Timberwolves. It literally looked like a Disney movie where this team was collapsing in front of you, right? Like they are just, they're done. They're over with. They're ready to go to the offseason. They'll have to play in the playing game, but they'll have no chance there. And then Anthony Edwards turned it on. Carl Anthony Towns went off. The Pelicans made no adjustments. And you end up losing to a team that literally looked like they were ready to walk off the court and quit. So I, I don't really know what you take from that and where you go from there because the crazy thing about it is the Pelicans now have to get ready and play a season-on-the-line basketball game in a couple of days. But uh, I just I, I was actually shocked. And this I've tried to make it to where this team doesn't surprise me, um, but they did because I really, when, I, when they were up early and it felt like they were, Brandon Ingram was going off. It felt like they were going to control the tempo. The Timberwolves, again, like I don't know if I can stress this enough, their best, one of their best defenders Two of their best defenders, actually, literally took themselves out of the game, one of them by fighting a teammate, the other one by breaking his hand in the tunnel, and you still lost that game. James, have you ever seen anything like that? No, I haven't. And it, it allu- I'm alluding to what you had just said, where you, you, you try not to get surprised with the Pelicans. And I looked, I was like, okay, well, you're only up like seven at halftime or eight at halftime, but B.I. had 27 at that point. He, Scored half of his points in the first quarter. Like, he was on a roll. You thought this was a well-oiled machine. Like, you should be able to win this game. But they somehow found a way to do the most Pelican thing ever. Yeah. And collapse. It, that's what we feel like what we see with, with New Orleans sports. Because we've seen it quite a few times with the Saints where you'll be up crazy or 
you're looking really good against this team and it's it's a pretty important game and then you collapse like i i don't get what you what happened in the second half because it, well you you knew that there was so much on the line and you found right. another way to blow another lead in a really important game that would help you with seeding that could help you in the playoffs and now you don't even know if you're going to make the playoffs Right, you know, well, you're up against it to be honest, because you have to beat an Oklahoma City team, which that game's at home. You won three out of four against them, but I will say I was actually in the Smoothie King Center covering the one loss to the Thunder, and it didn't look pretty, and it was the most recent one. So, you know, and uh, by the way, I wanted to mention Jaden McDon- Jaden McDaniel's is the player I was referring to, is the guard who punched the wall and broke his hand. Mm, yeah. So they not only had their biggest rim protector in Rudy Gobert out, but one of their best perimeter defenders in McDaniel's goes out, um, and. You know, the, the biggest thing that I saw in this game that frustrated me more so than just, you know, the circumstances that led to you losing the game was Carl Anthony Towns going off for 30 points and the Pelicans just seemed content to have Herb Jones out there guarding him. A guy who's, you know, loses five inches in the height battle and you end up having to deal with Herb Jones trying to guard Carl Anthony Towns when Jonas Valanciunas is sitting on the bench. And so for me, that's the, that was the coaching adjustment that never happened from Willie Green. That just frustrated me because it felt like Jonas was a, you know, if anything, could at least handle Carl Anthony Towns or give him a different type of look at some point in that second half and then maybe get some rebounds because rebounding became an issue. And they just, they never played him. And Jonas never played in that fourth quarter. And, you know, that's something that, that for me is tough to get over. And, and we'll see if Jonas plays. It's been kind of confusing how he's been in and out of the lineup in some big moments this year. Now you've got your season on the line, and, and I'm not sure he's going to play against Oklahoma City. We'll see. You know, he, he's certainly going to be in the starting lineup the way he always is, but are they going to play him in meaningful minutes? Um, that's what I am kind of waiting to see, and, and I'm not sure that we're going to see him, to be honest with you. So we got to take a timeout, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Sean Fazan of Fox 8. We're going to get his opinion on this Pelicans collapse and kind of where they stand now and also get a Saints offseason update from Sean. That's coming up next right here on The Game. This is the Jordy Holtberg Show. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back into the Jordy Holtberg Show. I'm Dawson Isla filling in for Jordy on this Monday edition of the show on The Game. Um, it's been a fun show so far. We talked about the Masters, and then last segment, James and I talked about what was a wild weekend in the NBA Teams that did care, teams that didn't care, teams that helped themselves in the seating, and teams like the New Orleans Pelicans that didn't necessarily help themselves. And to talk about that a little bit more and get a little bit more perspective from those Pelicans, as well as talk about the New Orleans Saints and their offseason so far, we have Sean Fazan from Fox 8. Sean, how is it going? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, I wanted to start with the Pelicans because as I was talking with James in the last segment about, you know, they get my hopes up and I've tried to not be surprised when they do things that are uh, less than stellar. But heading into a matchup with Minnesota where they're playing pretty well, then all of a sudden Rudy Gobert punches a teammate, Jaden McDaniels punches a wall, and it feels like everything is going in the Pelicans' favor and everything turns around in the second half and they actually end up losing that game, losing out on the eight seed and putting themselves into a tough corner in the play-in tournament. Just what happened in Minnesota? Yeah, I'm right there with you. It almost was like they got on autopilot after all that happened. Just thought they were going to coast their way to victory. And it just the the details just got sloppier and sloppier. Minnesota got 
they they you know they raised their level of play in the moment they understood what was at stake mm-hmm. and where uh, you know, you know what they could you know, or couldn't potentially get by winning or losing that game. It certainly felt like they had the sense of urgency needed, plus the bench play uh, to close out that game. And I just Pelicans got really sloppy, um, in particular in that fourth quarter on the offensive end, and then got got caught a little lazy just in terms of sheer rebounding the ball off missed right. free throws, um, and they just kind of got what they deserved. And it's been like that all season. That's why it's been very hard to get completely on board with this team just because uh, they have performances like this in them. Um, and as they get into the play-in tournament, um, you know, you hope you see the good version of the Pelicans, but the truth of the matter is it, 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 it's all it's all of it. it. It's the good and the bad as they enter the play-in, and you really don't know which way they're going to go. But I guess that keeps us watching as we get into this play-in tournament here this week. Well, right, and we have no choice but to continue to watch and just hope it turns around. Now, you know, one of the big storylines, of course, is that the Pelicans have been without their star for most of the season now. Zion Williamson went out on January the 2nd with a hamstring strain, and it felt like, you know, or at least the initial reports were that he was going to miss a month or so, and hopefully they were going to have him back and, you know, everything was going to be fine. And then we started playing this game where we give an update every two weeks and nothing really seems to change. And now we're more than three months into this and we're still just giving updates. So do you have any idea what happened with the injury or maybe just the timeline of how information was relayed to the media and the fans? Because people, I just feel like are left going, what is going on with this guy? And is he ever going to come back? Well, first thing you got to do whenever there's a Zion injury and they give you a um, a, a projected timeline at point of injury is just to, frankly, not take it serious. Right. And frankly, just ex- assume it's going to be extended at some point, which is what has happened with every single injury uh, Zion has had to deal with. In this case, um, you know, in terms of the way they handle releasing the information to the public, it's just, it, it's never been, it's just never been clear. And it's never, I mean, uh, before the latest update, there was the day before update, that was a non-updated. We're just going to let him continue to rehab. And the next day, David Griffin comes out and basically tried to explain where he's at and how basically he ain't coming back before the first round of the playoffs. So at best, at the absolute best, they somehow get to the second round of the playoffs, uh, he'll be returning. And it just goes to show, uh, A, he's a unique player. Of course. And it, when he, he's, he, frankly, at this point, I think it's, it's fair to call him injury prone. Um, and it's it still, when it comes to his recovery, um, whether it be a setback or when it comes to conditioning or whether it be just the, the, the clarity of the injury, it just never seems to line up to where it always seems like it's going to drag longer and longer and longer. And, look, I, you'd have to probably ask the players one-on-one, the coaches one-on-one, how they really feel. But you can't tell me they'd have at least a little bit of an impact when there's, just, there's always that Zion hovering over. Is he going to play? Is he going to come back? Even if you somewhat try to tune it out as a coach and a player, because that's all you really can do, it's still out there. So um, it's just a difficult situation. And now this is what, you know, third time in four years they're, they're, they're dealing with this. And um, th- there has to be a level of frustration. I don't know if you saw the latest update from, from Shams on uh, the Pat right. McAfee show that they don't, you know, they, they, don't, they don't think he's anywhere close to coming back. So, I mean, at this point, if you're the Pelicans, you just got to assume he's not going to be available until he's available. And even when he is available, he's got to work his way back into what they've been doing, not the other way around. So, it's just a tough situation for a guy that, when healthy, is you know can be one of the faces of the NBA, not just this franchise. And the problem is, he's just never been able to figure out this health component uh, on an otherwise explosive player. And 
here we are. Um, like you said, January 2nd uh, was when the injury occurred, and there still seems to be no clarity or at least no optimism at all in terms of when he's going to get back on the court. Well, and the other thing about it is, is David Griffin, the you know the VP of basketball operations, the general manager, told us last year that he felt like he didn't do a good enough job or they didn't do a good enough job getting Zion in front of people and having him explain things or them giving mm-hmm. updates. But then we've seen basically the exact same thing take place. The only difference is Zion is in the building as opposed to being out in Portland. So isn't it strange to you that they you know, said that they didn't handle it right last year and essentially have done the same exact thing this time around? thousand percent, and that leads me to believe there's probably some inner turmoil in terms of uh, clarity of the injury and or setback of the injury and or one side wants him to play, wants to play one side, is a little more hesitant to play. That, that's what that, that shows me. If, if they're still fumbling the easiest part of this, which was relaying the information about what the actual injury is and the timeline for recovery, there's clearly some, at least in my opinion, some things going on inside the organization that perhaps there's some strong disagreements uh, on, on either side that would lead to um, basically, which is, is poor messaging. And right. I, that should be the part that's easy. I mean, just come out and say it at this point. Everyone basically accepts that Zion is recovering and, and, and he's had to deal with health issues since he's been in the NBA, but they can't even seem to get that point of it right. I mean, here we are, again, back-to-back years, as you said, and they're still dealing with the same problem, not just the basketball problem, but the actual PR problem of uh, relaying the injury properly to the public. And, and we'll, we will see what they do. I, I quite frankly sure. don't have a lot of expectations for the play-in tournament, and I think maybe you'll just have to try again next year. But let's move on to the other New Orleans-based professional sports team. The Saints have had quite an offseason, and it started back, of course, when the rumors began about the quarterback position. There was a lot of time where it looked like they were going to have to settle for you know second pickings in the free agency class, but then they ended up landing Derek Carr, then in addition to Derek Carr, Mickey Loomis didn't stop. He went out and got Jamal Williams. He got some help on the defensive line. He brought in a couple of secondary pieces. It's been an active and exciting offseason. So out of everything that's taken place already, you know, how do you kind of grade out what they've done, and, and what do you think becomes the main focus as we move towards the draft? Yeah, um, first off, they're going to be somewhat um, – I don't know what the word is, pretty modest when it comes to when they speak publicly about their offseason moves because it is March, it is April. Mm-hmm. Those moves are made March, and obviously we're in April now. But it is the offseason is basically my point. But I could tell you behind closed doors they're very, very excited and very confident in the moves that they've made, that they have done enough um, to get back to the top of the NFC South, which is always uh, their primary goal or their first goal uh, in any offseason is to be able to compete within your division and win that division. And they feel like the moves made – uh, will allow them to do just that. They're very confident. You know, look, they swung for the fences with Derek Carr, and it's not the first time they've swung for the fences on a quarterback. But unlike last year, uh, they swung and missed. This year they swung and they landed their guy, which was a huge – it's hard to – I can't tell you how hard – I mean, how, how much of a victory that was right. just for the mindset and the psyche of an organization that needed a little bit of, of good fortune. Um they landed Derek Carr, who, in my opinion, is a top-12 quarterback. In my opinion, is the best quarterback in the NFC South right now is currently constructed. And they feel like just his presence alone uh, could turn a 7-10 and 10 team into a 9- or a 10-win team. You throw in some other moves. Uh, you mentioned the D-tackles that they brought in, the running back they brought in, the receiver, a couple of safeties. Um, and you stack that up with who they lost. Now, some players they did lose that they wanted to keep or that, frankly, they didn't think they were going to get the money that they got on the, on the open market. Uh, they feel very favorably about where they stand. Now, 
you checked a lot of boxes, but not all boxes have been checked. You go into the draft, they're all, they, they always want to do best player available, which is basically code for highest graded prospect available, not necessarily just the best athlete. So um, they'll go in. Um, I still think they're going to add some front seven help on the, on the defensive side of the ball. I still think a, a, another D tackle is a possibility. They really probably need a, uh, an edge pass rusher more than they're letting on, and they, they could certainly use some linebacker depth. Uh, they love drafting along the line of scrimmage, so uh, some depth the interior offensive line is never a bad thing. And then possibly a tight end and another running back as well. So uh, I think those are the, 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 the boxes still to check out there. But I think overall, as they sit right here uh, in this, what, second or third week of April, they feel pretty confident that they were able to you know, cross a lot of things off the list that they wanted to get accomplished, and now they go into the draft with eight draft picks and you know, some ammunition. I think it's more – well, probable than not, they move up at some point in the draft to make some moves, get some players that they like, and roll into the 2023 20, season uh, feeling pretty confident about where they stand. Well, Sean, appreciate your time as always. It was great catching up with you about the Pelicans and Saints, and I'm sure we'll uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. This is the Jordy Holberg Show on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Are you tired of your boring man cave? Well, the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wants to hook you up with the ultimate man cave makeover built by Lafayette Marble and Granite. Sign up today in the clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com for a chance to win a new recliner from Vortalon's Furniture, a flat-screen TV from AVI, and more. It's the ultimate man cave makeover, powered by Lafayette Marble and Granite and the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Don't agree with what Jordy has to say? Not to worry. He's always open to a healthy debate. Well, Dean, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that Actually, question. Actually, I'd like to jump in and take that one, Jimmy, if you don't mind. Have at it, Hoss. Give us a call on the hotline at 337-706-0111. Now back to more of the Jordy Holtberg Show on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. 2.50 on the clock here on the Jordy Holtberg Show. Once again, Dawson Eisler subbing in for Jordy Holtberg on this Monday edition of the show in which we've already covered a ton here in hour number one. We recapped the Masters, talked about some of the storylines that took place there. John Rahm winning the tournament. Um, then we covered the Pelicans and their just absolute collapse in Minnesota over the weekend with a chance to get the eighth seed. They could not get it done. And some of the more fun NBA storylines that took place because a lot of guys got an opportunity that don't necessarily play a ton of minutes on a regular basis. So those some cool stories, including some local ones, and uh, you know, with Kenny Lofton of the Memphis Grizzlies going for over 40 points. And then we just talked with Sean Fazan from Fox 8. Um, he does a great job covering the team, and he kind of gave us some of the perspective on what the Pelicans have failed to do throughout the season, how they've failed to communicate about Zion, and you know what the outlook is moving forward, which is going to be very difficult to get out of that play-in tournament, and hopefully that they're able to do something like that. And we also touched on a little bit of the Saints offseason. Want to talk a little bit about Cajun baseball? Um, if in case you know you weren't able to catch any of that series, they were of course on the road at Marshall, playing for the first time against Marshall. Now being a member of the Sun Belt Conference, so that's a trip that they're going to be making more often. But it was a weekend in which look, Coach Deggs was not happy with the way the team played on Tuesday against Tulane. Um, he was not. It was you know I was there for that game, and afterwards you could just sense the frustration. He tried to answer some questions for us, but he was just not in a very good mood. Um, after his team blew a six-run lead in the ninth inning, but still won the game. 
Um, but but he was not very satisfied with the way they played. They, of course, before that had lost the series to App State, a series that they expected to win. So everything was kind of, you know, down in the dumps, but they turned it around and played, in my mind, maybe their best weekend yet this season. Uh, Marshall's not a great team. They're about middle of the pack in the Sun Belt. I think they had a 4-5 and five conference record entering the weekend. But what you did was you went on the road, which is never easy to sweep in the Sunbelt Conference, and it's really never easy to sweep on the road in conference play, and that's exactly what they did. The you know a lot of these a couple of these games weren't all that competitive either. They had great starting pitching throughout, and you know the one guy that I really took away the most from in this weekend was Blake McGeehee. Now McGeehee was a guy who started the season in the weekend rotation. If you'll remember, he started the first game at Rice or the second game in that series. But he had some forearm tightness, and he missed a few weeks. He was kind of in and out. He came back and made a start in a midweek game, but didn't pitch very long and then kind of had another setback or just didn't pitch for a couple of weeks. Well, he worked his way back into the rotation, got a midweek appearance against Tulane, and then got the start in the middle game of that series on Friday. And he was really, really good. He was just really good, and he gave you length. Uh, He gave you six innings. He threw less than 100 pitches to do so. And, you know, I, I kind of I tweeted it out at the time, and I really think it's the case. Blake McGee, he has the opportunity to kind of change what the Cajuns are capable of. And I don't want to say change their season because, look, they're 23-9. and nine. They're playing good baseball. But if Blake McGee, he is going to give you consistent length and is going to be that second guy or, you know, maybe even that ace, him and he and Jake Hammond, the potential to be one-two, and Jackson Neza, really the, there's a chance for all three of them to kind of be co-aces so to speak because none of them have emerged but if he's able to do that that starts to really change how you line up a weekend because all year they've kind of been juggling around that third starting spot and look even for a stretch Neza wasn't pitching well at the beginning so you didn't know any of that well now you you finally had three straight really great starts from all three of your pitchers and I'm not saying that means they're going to be great the rest of the way because Coach Deggs talked about some of the matchups that Marshall's a very aggressive team. We had him on footnotes this morning, and he was kind of talking about why he felt that some of those pitchers were so effective. But, you know, I thought Blake McGee and what he did, it really changed my mindset. And I'm hoping it wasn't just a flash in the pan. I'm hoping he becomes a reliable starter. He's going to get another chance this weekend. Um, and as they play another really good team in Troy, who's coming to the Teague. But, you know, James, I don't know if you felt the same way. I thought Blake McGee kind of. Um, you know, made a statement that he's here and, and hopefully here to stay in the rotation. Yeah, with Blake, I mean, you've kind of been looking for a more consistent guy. You had Nezu on Sunday, and then you eventually moved him to Saturday, which he's been good. So you've been looking for a third guy. Blake, it's been a relatively small sample size. Right, he's those only, injuries hurt him. Yeah, those injuries hurt him. He's only done 13 innings so far, but his ERA, it's less than point seven. Yeah. So he's been doing really well so far. I think if he can continue that, he's going to become one of the main starters for the Cajuns. And that's what they really need. And then going over to the softball side, you know, Coach Glasgow's team, I kind of talked about it a little bit in the open when I was talking about what we were going to talk today. They had turned things around a little bit already because they went on the road to James Madison last weekend. There was a lot of talk on Twitter, at least from the James Madison fans, about the fact that they thought they were going to end the Sun Belt Conference wins (laughs) streak, which was at 76. The Cajuns had no issues there. They swept James Madison on the road, extended that streak, and kind of walked out of town with a smile on their face. Um, But then they had another big test coming up at home last weekend where they had to play South Alabama, who, you know, we didn't necessarily, they're always a good softball program, but we didn't expect them to be eight and one out of the gates in conference play, but that's what they were. 
So you had a team that was again maybe kind of kind of try, try to challenge the Cajuns for that top spot, and they just dominated them. I mean, it, you know, in the last game was two to nothing. They had to grind out, you know, that last game, but the offense played very well. You continue to get performances from Lauren Allred and Lainey Crater. I mean, who two girls that we didn't have tremendous expectations for coming into the season. They're now two of your three best sitters, along with Carly Heath. And honestly, to be to be completely honest, I thought we were going to get big things from Carly this year, but I didn't think she was going to be your best hitter. But now you have all three of those girls producing in the middle of the lineup, along with Maya Davis, who's always been good at getting on base. And then some of those, you know, that takes a little bit of the pressure off of Alexa and Stormy. And I think there may be, you know, I don't want to call it a turning point. It's the same thing with baseball. I don't think it's a turning point in the season because they were already winning a lot of games. And, you know, look, they played a gauntlet of a schedule in the first month of the season. We said all along you were going to have to temper your expectations early to reap the results late. And I think that's what you're seeing right now. It's a team that that is battle-tested. They've already played most of the best teams in the country. They lost to a lot of them. They beat a few of them. Now they'll get another chance this weekend. They play Baylor, Texas A&M in midweek games. Um, before having another weekend Sunbelt series. So, look, we'll find out. And then, by the way, that Sunbelt series is in San Marcos against Texas State, who, for most of the year, has been the team that people kind of thought would challenge the Cajuns the most. So you got five big games coming up. But I just think they've been able to turn the way that I think about them around because of a couple of girls that we didn't necessarily expect big things from, and that's Lainey Crater and Lauren Allred. As long as those two continue to hit and you get the pitching production that you've gotten from Megan Shorman, Sam Landry, Kendra Lamb, and others, they're going to win a lot of games down the stretch. They're going to win a lot of games, and they're going to put themselves right back into the regional hosting conversation. Now, that's another reason that makes these two games extremely important. You're playing high RPI teams. You need to find a way to try to win these two games and boost that RPI. But overall, I think it's been you know a great run for Coach Glasgow's team, and they seem to be hitting a bit of a peak. That's going to do it for hour number one. Hour number two coming your way on the Jordy Holtberg Show next. We'll have Zach Nagy all on all next on the game. Live and local, this is the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Open for the end zone. It's a Saints touchdown. It's time for two hours of the best sports talk on the airwaves. Here's your host, the Blonde Bomber, Jordy Holtberg. Welcome into our number two, the Jordy Holtberg Show. Once again, Dawson Iserlo filling in for the Blonde Bomber here on this Monday edition of the show. And look, we had a pretty packed hour number one already. Talked Masters, talked the NBA, a little bit of the Pelicans and their struggles. Then we had Sean Vazand on of Fox 8 to talk more about those Pelicans and a little bit of Saints offseason draft. And then we covered Cajun baseball and softball in the last segment. I do want to get back a little bit to the Saints here, and I know James has some thoughts as well. We're getting closer and closer to draft season now. I've been getting to hear it every day because I am the producer, in case you know some of you are unfamiliar, I'm the producer for both RP, RP3 and Company and Footnotes. So I get to hear Kevin Foote talk about the draft every day, and he's basically been talking about it for the last month. Um, but the NFL draft is getting closer and closer. I mean, it's less than a month away. We're almost at the, what, two-week mark? I mean, wow, it, it's even closer than I kind of thought in my head going into this. So, you know, it's it's weird for me, and I know that James and I have both done some mock drafts from a strictly Saints perspective, and James has actually done an entire first-round mock draft. But, like, my complete perspective on the way the Saints should go about this draft changed when they made a bunch of free agent signings. Like, they went out and got Saunders and Shepard at the defensive tackle spot, and that kind of changed my thinking where I was very set on a defensive tackle 
now I'm a little bit more open to opportunities here. So I'm interested to see, James, are, are you still – like where is your head as far as the Saints? And then, you know, you can kind of get into some of the overall first-round storylines that you like right now. Yeah, for me, I was in the same boat because you only had Prince of Millie when we first did our first mock draft mm-hmm. for Strictly Saints. But then they got a couple of guys, so I'm like, okay, well, you don't – it's not as – pressing of a need but at this point I still really look at edge rusher because the three most important positions in football are quarterback the guy protecting the blind side of the quarterback which is usually the left tackle and just getting offensive line general and the guys affecting the quarterback so mainly defensive linemen especially edge rushers I'm right there with you now it's funny too because I've I've I felt like for a long time, man, I'm just over it happened. You know, Davenport and Peyton Turner, of course, haven't been these slam dunk draft picks. So there's a little bit of fatigue at the position. But the same way I feel about quarterback is that, look, if you draft one and you get it wrong and it's, you know, obviously wrong, like not not a guy who's like, well, we'll see. It's obviously you struck out. You got to try again. Like that's the league. You can't just you can't say, oh, well, we drafted one. It didn't work out. Well, you got to try and draft one again or you got to go sign one in free agency. So that's kind of how I am with edge rusher. Like Cam Jordan's not getting any younger, and Nolan Smith's the name that I really like. I just I don't think he's going to fall to the Saints. He did in the last mock draft I did. Of course, you know that's not an exact science, uh, but a guy like Nolan Smith that's capable of rough, rushing the passer, but also doing a couple other things is what I really like. But yeah, I'm kind of with you. Like, give me somebody who can help Cam Jordan and help Carl Granderson and maybe Peyton Turner if he plays. <laughs> Win. Getting after the quarterback, and I, I think you know. That's for me. That's where I think they should go. But I'm also at the point where, and I know Kevin Foote has, uh, you know, echoed this sentiment. Like I won't be like truly upset with almost any pick they make because they've put themselves in a position to take their favorite guy, and I think that's that's really valuable because that hasn't always been the case. Like, you know, if they wouldn't have made some of the signings they made, they'd have felt a lot of pressure to get a defensive tackle pretty early, you know. But now they could add one certainly. But if they don't, you feel kind of okay with where they are. Yeah, and with Nolan Smith, I agree with you. I really like Nolan as a prospect. The issue is, when it comes to the Saints, he's not he's not the build that they look for. He's That's not the true. archetype they, because they he's small. He's a score. small. He's a small speed rusher that has some power, but they're looking for the guys that are six five and above, like two seventy, two eighty plus usually, and they kind of have the ability to bat the passes down because they love how tall they are and they bring well, more they, they, they bring more power rushing score. than speed rushing they love raw athletic score it's why they took marcus davenport it's why they took peyton turner and so yeah you're it would be a changing but there has been some idea and some speculation that with dennis allen now fully at the helm a year under his belt and you know some of the personnel being gone of course sean payton now in denver that maybe we're going to see and even look even some of the front office personnel has moved on right Maybe we're going to see a changing in their philosophy. That's that's what I'm hopeful for, which I didn't mind the raw athletic score stuff. Look, it worked out sometimes. It didn't work out others. But yeah, I would, I, would, I would really be interested to see, do they change that line of thinking or do they double down with, look, this is how our organization has operated and this is how we're going to operate. That leads me into the other thing I wanted to ask you. If it's talking about something the Saints have been set on for a long time and I, you know, they like to move up. Mm-hmm. They like to go up in the first round. And this year, coincidentally, they have picks at 29 and 40. It would make a lot of sense to a team in the early 20s if the Saints wanted to move up, and I don't know how far they could get up, but to package those two together and try and go get a top-end talent. Originally, when there was a ton of holes, I was just against it. I was like, please, let's just keep all our draft picks for once. <laughs> 
But now, like, if they move up, again, it depends who they go up and get and everything they give up. But, like, I wouldn't be heartbroken. And honestly, I just wouldn't be surprised because that is just what they do. I wouldn't be mad if they did it because there's so many different ways you could go with it. It's not like you're absolutely needing an edge rusher. It would really help because if you get into the playoffs, you're going to need to be able to affect the pass. To get you there, you probably need to affect the passer, too. Yeah, and it's like this is a weak NFC South. So if you... The only thing is, it depends on who it is. Because if you trade up and you see Bijan is in the early to mid twenties, and you go trade up to go get him, then I have an issue. I do too. Running back is just—it's so deep this year. And well, I brought it at nauseum. It's—it's a very—it's very easy to replace a running back in this league, but yep. also in this draft, there's so many guys because I've expressed my feelings about how I like Deuce Vaughn from Kansas State because every time I've watched him play dude has an explosive run he always puts up numbers he I, I people say they're looking over him because he's five six and it's like okay well what about Darren Sproles right well there's a role for Deuce Vaughn somewhere in this league but I do agree with you if it's if they go up for which if they are to go up Bijan is one of the names that you're gonna hear and and that's what worries me. Yeah, and and look, I love Bijan Robinson. I think he's the most complete back in the class. I think he should be the first back off the board. But the data suggests that it's very, very difficult to get your investment back when you take a running back in the first round. And that's why we've seen less and less of them. I think, look, 10 years ago, I think Bijan Robinson might be a top five pick. I really do. Now, the exception to the rule has been if you can find a generational guy or a real, you know, a Christian McCaffrey comes to mind. Saquon. Saquon Barkley, if he stays healthy. If you can find those guys, they're probably worth the first round investment. Even Alvin Kamara is a guy who probably would have been worth. Now, he was, we picked him in the third round. But I do agree with you. If you're going to use your, and I, would, I wouldn't even love the idea of using 29 on him, but if you're going to package 29 and maybe 40 as well, I think that's too much to give up just to get a running back at, a, a, again, a spot that you now have Jamal Williams, and we don't fully know about Kamara's availability, but he's going to be available at some point for you, I would expect. So I, I would have a little, you know, that that is a good point there. But what about the rest of the first round? Like this 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 is a, an intriguing draft in that you have a lot of these quarterbacks. You know, there's a couple that everybody thinks are definitely going to go in the top five. There's a couple more that, you know, depending on who you ask, could tell you they're a second-round pick or going to be the number one overall pick. Guys like Anthony Richardson and Will Levis. So, like, what do you make of of that situation and just this entire first round in general? It's it seems like it's got a lot more question marks than years past. Yeah, there's not as much concrete guys that are going to be like well, they're going one, two, three, four, five. I think with this, I mean, I believe C.J. Stroud's going to be the number one pick. I don't because people were talking about. Um. Josh McCown in his interaction with CJ, which to me, I, I thought it just made a lot of sense even before that. But this is kind of in the smokescreen side of the timeline when it comes to NFL draft and hearing rumors here and there. But CJ Stroud to me just makes a lot of sense for Carolina. And I've also just seen Bryce Young ever since last year. I don't know if it's just because I saw Matt do a franchise on Madden and he had drafted Bryce Young <laughs> with the Texans because that's he was he was asking me who should I rebuild with I said just do the Texans he took Bryce Young but it just I've just seen Bryce Young in a Texans uniform for a while and it feels like that's the type of team that they would roll with it does uh, feel like that and then Arizona it just to me it makes also a lot of sense that they would go get another edge rusher you moved on from Chandler Jones you don't really have anybody JJ Watt retired, Watt retired yeah. go get Will Anderson at three 
Well, and so you don't see this scenario playing out where someone goes all in on Anthony Richardson in that in in one of those first three slots. Maybe not the first three, but you think shortly after that. I think depending on what happens, like three could be a possibility in my eyes. It'd probably be someone moving up to get him there, you know. And I think that's the other thing too that's interesting to me. Who's willing to go if someone does like the talent? And that's something I've told Foot because you know and we have a lot of callers that have voiced look legitimate concerns about Anthony Richardson's accuracy and stuff like that. But there's it only takes one team that sees the athletic ability and the potential and goes, we can fix that guy. We can fix the throwing. And so it's going to be about whether a guy, whether a team comes up and gets him. So that I'm really interested to see. I, I'm with you. I think the first couple picks end up being more of the guys we were talking about all along, as opposed to the more recent hype that's been around Levis and Richardson. But uh, somebody's going to fall in love with Richardson and pick him earlier than than I would if I was in those positions. Right. I'm not the type of guy that's going to go for it. I mean, you saw Lamar be the last pick in the first round when he got drafted, and then Jalen Hurts was midway in the second. Well, and that's why that's why I think someone's going to go up and get him because they're going to see what happened with Lamar and see what happened with Jalen Hurts and go that maybe this guy is that guy again, you know? But I just wonder you know, look, we saw with Josh Allen, look, he was very unpolished as a passer and he improved, but I just don't know if Anthony Richardson is going to be able to take the steps as a passer necessary to make him a viable starting quarterback. I think the most likely spot that Anthony would go outside of six because right now I have him going to the Lions at six the only other spot ahead of that would be five because Seattle has a big history of trading back they're not one to necessarily stay at a spot for very long or trade up and they don't they have Geno Smith people were saying that they could still draft QB why you just extended him for another three years what's the point in that so right now I have them taking Jalen Carter out of Georgia but it's like if somebody else, like if the Falcons, which I don't think the Falcons would, but let's say like the Raiders well, want to go from seven to five and like secure a spot, or maybe try and jump somewhere. That's possible. Well, that's the last thing. And, you know, before we get to the break, I wanted to ask you about that. Everyone's been talking about Jalen Carter. How far is he going to fall? You know, I depending on who you listen to, I think some teams are really kind of out on him right now with the, you know, not only the legal situation, but then the combine, how poor he, you know, performed there. Do you see him getting out of the top 10 at all, or, or do you think someone goes back up and gets him? No, I think if he makes some sort of a drop, somebody is going to make a move. If he falls outside of the top five, mm-hmm. I think someone would like talk to the Falcons or talk to the Bears or talk to the Raiders to try and get that 7-8-9 spot and then go get him there because it's like he's too talented talent, to not be yeah. taken in the top 10. I don't care about his misdemeanor. I don't care that he didn't do great. Well, and he's he's also supposedly been, you know, cleared for the most part yeah. of, of any criminal issues there. And it's obviously not something you would prefer to have, you know, happen. And it's an unfortunate situation in general, by the way, just very sad. But um, yeah, I get the sense that someone's going to go up and get him. I, I would agree with you on that. Well, we got to take a time out. But when we come back, we're going to talk with uh, a guy who knows everything LSU related. We'll talk with Zach Nagy on the other side of the break. That's next on the Jordy Holtberg Show. This is the Jordy Holtberg Show on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Well, do you want to take your lady out for a nice dinner, but you're low on cash? Not to worry. The Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com can help you with your date night blues. 
As a member of our rewards club, you will have the opportunity to score some excellent prizes like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lester's Steakhouse or a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen, both located at Cypress Bayou Casino Resort. You can only win these great prizes by becoming a member of the Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free, it's simple, so go sign up today. Every day is a Chamber of Commerce kind of day when you're listening to The Jordy Holberg Show. This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros in Southwest Louisiana. Welcome back to The Jordy Holberg Show. Dawson Izerlo in for Jordy on this Monday edition of the show. I want to remind you that we're broadcasting live from the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. Our next guest is a guy who actually roamed the campus of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette while I did, uh, was a raging Cajun with me, but now he covers the Tigers for LSU Country. It's Zach Nagy who now joins us. Zach, how are you, my guy? Doing well, doing well. How about yourself, my man? Oh, I'm doing well. And look, it's it's been an exciting time, I'm sure, for you to be covering the Tigers as the women's basketball team just took home a national championship um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the, the fallout of that because Angel Reese has been all over you know, the news. She was on uh, you know, late-night TV shows and you know, being parodies of her and everything else. Um, Kim Mulkey's already active in the transfer portal. It just feels like, despite winning the title, nothing has slowed down with Kim's program, huh? It, it never stops with LSU sports. It's something that I'm, I'm learning very, very quickly. When it comes to Kim Mulkey and that team, it's, just, it's a nonstop roller coaster. But first, kind of the Angel Reese saga. It, it, it's been something worth, you know, looking into. She's been on Good Morning America. She's been on ESPN, the SNL skit. She, she's been all over. She's cashing in with NIL deals. It's, it's nonstop with Angel. And they kind of just came out with a new report saying whether it's men or women's basketball, she signed more deals than anybody. So she's cashing in on the success. She's reaping the, the benefits of being on one of the top teams ever. And it's, it's been something interesting. As for Kim Mulkey, she doesn't sleep. She's an animal in the recruiting game. She's dominating, whether it's high school, she's gearing up for the transfer portal, like we were mentioning. And it, it, it's a lot of stuff. It's, it doesn't stop. They're, they're killing it out there. Well, and, and I want to mention, you know, one of those maybe, you know, transfer targets that Kim Mulkey could be after because Haley Van Lith, the star guard for Louisville, who, you know, of course made some made a name for herself in the NCAA tournament with her play and, you know, some of the battles that she was a part of. She enters the portal, and immediately people start to say, hey, she was considering Baylor when Kim Mulkey was still the coach there out of high school when she ultimately decided to go to Louisville. So is there any truth to these rumors that you know of, or is it still pretty early in that process about maybe Haley Van Lith uh, heading to Baton Rouge? It's really early in the process just because it's been about 48 hours. Um, But there's some things worth noting. You know, she did a do-not-contact clause. Once she right. entered the portal, so she's not going to be able to hear from programs. She's the, she's kind of controlling the process herself, which kind of points in the direction of her kind of understanding where she wants to go or has a general idea. And when you're looking at the relationship with Kim Mulkey and her coming out of high school, it was Louisville or Baylor, or her top two schools at the time. So she has a previous relationship with you know Kim Mulkey, and they kind of fit like a glove. Um, Kim Mulkey's re- her her mindset and her energetic personality and tenacity all kind of mimic what Haley Van Lift's all about. So they kind of appear to be a match made in heaven. Who knows with NIL nowadays, you know, she has an Adidas deal. She has all these other things and LSU's kind of jumped on board with the NIL space. They're 
of a school that's ahead of the curve. So there are a lot of factors that kind of point in the right direction for Haley Van Lith. Will she become an LSU Tiger? We'll see. Could she team up with Caitlin Clark at Iowa like a lot of people are kind of like fascinating over? Who knows? Go back to the West Coast where she's from? Maybe. A lot of different options there, but LSU's certainly a, a spot that makes a lot of sense. Checks all the boxes. So we'll see. I think it'll be something that happens sooner rather than later, though, when she comes to a decision. It will be certainly interesting to see. A lot of eyes on the women's game in general now, which is great to see. Let's flip over and talk a little bit about a little bit about Brian Kelly's team. I know you've been covering some of the spring practices. I believe they're nine practices in now. Uh, what have been some of your main takeaways, you know, over there as a, an LSU team that was maybe ahead of schedule last year, trying to carry that momentum into this season? There's a lot of talk going on during camp. There's a lot of different things going on, whether it's, you know, maybe lack of offensive line depth. Even on the defensive side of things, they're still trying to recover, whether it's Mason Smith, Makai Wingo. Your top two guys on that line are both battling injuries right now. Mason Smith obviously tore his ACL in the season opener against Florida State. He's a non-contact participant right now. It's nice to see him on the field, but obviously it'd be nice to see him go through drills and stuff like that along with Makai Wingo. Um, just, you know, there's a lot going on. We saw Greg Brooks, a Louisiana native. He was in a boot for a couple of weeks. I'm sorry, a couple of days. And he's kind of back to his old self now. He's getting off of the injury side of things. He's starting to become a full participant again. Um, a lot of things. We can, we can even talk about uh, former Raging Cage and Kyron Lacey. He's starting to emerge as one of the top wide receivers in that room alongside Brian Thomas Jr., Malik Neighbors, who was obviously kind of the Tigers wide receiver one last year when Kayshawn Booty fell out. Um, there's, there's a lot of things going on in Baton Rouge with spring camp. I'll tell you that. It's, 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 been, a, it's been an eventful last couple of weeks. Well, you know, let's go to the offensive line um, because – I was kind of under the impression that some reinforcements were on the way, but is that just a matter of some of those guys aren't available for the spring and they're expecting them later down the line, or is this going to be something that Brian Kelly's got to deal with throughout the season of maybe just not having as many guys as he would like? Absolutely, spot on. Reinforcements are on the way with Maryland transfer Mason Lunford. You have five-star Zalens Hurd on the way. New Orleans native Tyree Adams, a four-star as well. He's coming, so there are a lot of guys that are coming right now, but just you know, during these first couple of weeks during camp, there's been some injuries lost a lot of reserves to the transfer portal. It, it, it's, it's, it's a work in progress, but, you know, despite lack of depth per se, you have a ton of returning talent. You have Will Campbell, who started as a true freshman at left tackle. Emory Jones started at right tackle as a true freshman. And then you have guys who've been there, whether it, I mean, it, it, it goes on and on. So there's returning talent, and it's a matter of letting those guys get a breather during camp. So the summer will be very important. Fall camp will be very important once you get all of your bodies, you know, gelling as one. Well, what about the defense? You know, what can you tell us so far? Because the defense, of course, was really good at times last year, even, you know, carried this team at a couple of points. We had the emergence of some great talents on that side of the ball. Um, are you expecting more of the same? Um, and, you know, who's kind of standing out to this point? Yeah, so on defense, it's a lot of fresh faces. On offense, you're getting the majority of your production back. But on defense, it's kind of a kind of a different story. You have an entirely fresh-faced secondary, whether it's Southeastern transfer Zai Alexander, Texas A&M transfer Denver Harris, Ohio State transfer J.K. Johnson. You know, it goes on and on. You have early enrollees, Javion Toviano, and you have a bunch of guys who are kind of first-year Tigers. And that secondary is going to take some time to gel, and it's going to take some time for them to get right. But even just going and looking at your linebackers, you return, obviously, superstar Harold Perkins. 
you went out and you got Omar Spates from Oregon State. You, you, you attacked that defense in the transfer portal very well, and you're getting a lot of production. But, of course, like I was saying, it's, it's, it's a matter of time until they start to gel. And we saw that defense kind of hit their stride last year, late in the year. And I'm, I'm hoping that's not the case this year. Obviously, you want to see them get right for that first, you know, week one against Florida State, your school. Um, so we kind of want to just, you know, get things going earlier, sooner rather than later. Um, we, we've seen a lot. That, that secondary is going to be something special. You have a lot of talent, and you, you have a lot of bodies. There's depth at that position group specifically. Uh, JV and Toviano, an early enrollee, four-star out of Texas. He's been shining. He, he's, he's a hybrid. He can do really anything you want. He's going to thrive in the nickel, at the nickel position probably. Mm-hmm. Put him at cornerback. Put him at safety. You can put him everywhere. And it's, it's going to be special. I think the spring game is going to tell a lot as well once we get a full-on grasp of how they look in an in-game situation. Well, it's, it will be exciting. I'm glad you mentioned the Knowles. That's setting up to be quite, you know, maybe even a bigger matchup than it was a year ago when those two teams opened the season, so that will be fun to see. Before you go, I wanted to get, you know, at least your thoughts on the number 1 baseball team in the country right now. Uh, LSU had an interesting series. They were challenged by South Carolina. They lost the first game. They battled back, had a crazy comeback win. Then Rain, you know, ends up canceling the third game, but... They've still won every SEC series outside of that one, of course, but they haven't swept. So, you know, what are your overall impressions of what Jay Johnson's team's been able to do? I know the expectations remain sky high. Um, are they living up to it in your mind, or, or do you have some concerns? I think it's difficult to say that they're maybe exceeding expectations or reaching those just because it's it's championship or bust type thing for them. Um, I think there's work that needs to be done when it comes to the bullpen. You're you know, you just lost Garrett Edwards, who went out on Friday with an elbow injury. I don't believe it's going to be as severe as they were thinking initially after undergoing some tests. We were talking to Jay Johnson earlier today. Um, he's looking on a positive spot right there. We'll get a, an official ruling soon. Um, your bullpen's been something that struggled. And in order to succeed in the postseason and moving on, they're going to have to get it together right there. You have one of the best coaches, pitching coaches in the country in West Johnson, who has, you know, all the intangibles of getting them right. Aside from the pitching, at the plate, you're killing it. You have Dylan Cruz, who's leading the country in on-base percentage, um, runs batted in, in everything. So you, you have the power at the plate. It's just a matter of getting a consistent bullpen. And once, once that gets right towards the end of the season, they're, they're going to live up to those expectations. This team is beyond talented. Well, Zach, I appreciate your time as always. Thanks for giving us the update on everything LSU, and I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. Let's do it again. Jordy Holtenberg is known far and wide as the Blonde Bomber. For the perfectly feathered golden mane he rocked back in the day at LSU. Just let your soul The hair may not be as golden or as long, but Jordy is still making a name for himself. Back to more of the Jordy Holtberg Show on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to the Jordy Holtberg Show here on the game. Dawson Angelo in for Jordy on this Monday edition of the show. We just got done talking to Zach Nagy of LSU Country, and that's kind of one of where, where I want to lead off. The last thing we asked him was about Jay Johnson's baseball team over there and Look, Tigers have spent most of the season as the consensus number one team in the country, and yet some people might sit there and look at their SEC record and go, well, how are they only 7-4 and four if they're supposed to be the number one team in the country? The first thing I would say is they have played probably the toughest 
in-conference schedule of any team in the country or close to it. Now, obviously, we've you know discussed, and I'm, it's been discussed on this show and others, they did not play a good non-conference schedule. Um, and that was just kind of part of the way that they designed it. You understand when you're going to go through an absolute gauntlet that you're going to go through an SEC play that you don't play quite the same level of you know talent in the non-conference portion. With all that being said, though, I think you know to some people LSU might still have some things to prove, and I would be somewhat in that conversation because I do think that their lack of pitching in certain key spots can eventually come back to bite them. The interesting thing about it is that I think it's a thing that's going to get masked for much of the year because they're going to just outslug a lot of opponents, whether they pitch well or not. We've seen that to a certain extent already in conference play, but you know it was an example where in the second game against South Carolina, they give up seven runs fairly early on in that ball game, and they come back and win it eight to seven because they're just that good offensively. The concern becomes when you get into tournament play and not just regional play, because look, I think this LSU team, I know anything can happen in college baseball, and I'm not suggesting that there's no way they could lose a regional, but it's going to be very difficult for a two seed to go into Baton Rouge and beat them more than one time. But when you get to super regional play, which we expect them to be in, and you're facing a team that you know, maybe doesn't have quite as much talent as you, but is pretty close and maybe has a really good number one starter that's going to be a draft pick and might have another really good number two starter. That's when you start to get concerned because they have been shut down by ace pitchers at times. I shouldn't say shut down. They've been held in check. That's a better way to put it. Um, They haven't scored 10 runs a game in, in all those situations. So that's where I do worry a little bit about their ability to get key outs in a game where maybe the offense doesn't explode for eight, nine, ten runs. And so that's something that I think you're seeing a little bit of throughout conference play. That's why they're not sweeping as many opponents, because it's been one game out of the three usually that they just struggle in. But again, keep all of it in mind that they've lost a game in each of these series to almost all consensus top 15, top 20, certainly top 25 teams in Arkansas and South Carolina. Like They're playing great opponents now. It doesn't get any easier. They play Kentucky this weekend, another very good opponent. And so I'm interested to see, you get the sense the sweep is coming sooner rather than later. I don't know if this weekend against Kentucky is it because Kentucky's still very good. But then again, towards the back half of that conference schedule, the Mississippi teams are a little bit down. Ole Miss even coming off their College World Series title seems to be very down. Um, So you'll get some chances to play the softer portion of the schedule eventually. But right now, James, it doesn't get any easier. And that's the thing that I'm just like, like I don't know if you're going to, and I know some fans are expecting sweeps and expecting dominance, but it's tough to be dominant against other really, really great college baseball teams. Yeah, baseball's kind of that thing where if you're both really good, you're not going to see a whole bunch of dominance. And yeah, you play Kentucky again, and you're, I'm looking for a two out of three. Yeah, But once you get into Ole Miss, once you get into Bama, once you get into Auburn and Mississippi State, those series, then I think it's like a couple the of consistent... Them probably want to sweep. Yeah, like at least two of those series, you should be looking for a sweep at that point. Because even with that, you still got to play McNeese in a midweek. You're still going to play the Cajuns in a midweek. You got Northwestern in between Auburn and Mississippi State. like, And then Southeastern between Bama and Auburn. So it's like you have a lot of those games where it's like, you should be fine, and by the end of the season, you should still, to me, have less than 10 losses. Yeah, I... Because right now you're right, at five. Right, right around that 10 mark is, is to me, 
is where I kind of thought they'd be. And yeah, I think that's a good thing to maybe strive for. Maybe try and keep it at single digits. Um, but then again, like the, the crazy thing about baseball and especially in the SEC is one bad weekend, you could lose two or three games in a, in a hurry. Um, it just, it can happen like that. But I did want to get back to the Masters. We spent much of the first segment, in case you're just joining us, talking about the Masters and John Rahm. Um, surging to the victory, some of the storylines involved. It's one of my favorite weekends of the year. I'm a big golf fan in general, and so you know I was really intrigued by a lot that went on. I did want to talk about something that I mentioned a little bit, if you heard RP3 and Company this morning, but it's the pace of play. And so, in case you didn't see what was you know what took place, or maybe you did, but you didn't hear any of the comments afterwards, Brooks Kepka, who finished tied for second in this tournament was asked about the pace of play. And, it, you know, it was kind of this situation where he and Rom both looked kind of frustrated at times, waiting on the group in front of them. Uh, the group in front of them did consist of Patrick Cantlay, who is a guy who has been accused of being a slow pace of player, pace of play guy in the past. Uh, Brooks Kepka had this to say, quote, John went to the bathroom like seven times during the round and we were still waiting. <laughs> he also went on to say that they were brutally slow. So, you know, Brooks did not feel that um, Patrick, well, and again, it, it, you know, Cantlay was not the only player in the group. Victor Hovland was also part of the group, but there were a couple times where we saw Victor Hovland chipping and playing before Cantlay was even up the fairway. Um, so it didn't seem to be on Hovland. It seemed to be mostly surrounding Cantlay. And it's something in golf that's really interesting because you see what's happening right now in the major leagues in baseball. There is a pitcher clock and now there is a batter clock and you get strikes called on you if you're not ready to go and you get strikes or balls called on you as a pitcher if you're not ready to go. Um, there's been an emphasis on, you know, of course, sports have always wanted to make their products the most entertaining for television, but we're seeing a little bit more of a sense of urgency and emphasis put on that. And golf is something that, you know, pace of play's always been talked about. There's certain guys that are just very slow, certain guys who have their, you know, pre-shot routines, and they are kind of relentless in exercising those pre-shot routines. But I do think it's something when you're on the biggest stage and you're in a major championship, like you were, and Patrick Cantlay, now, not to say he should be able to take all the time in the world if he was playing for the win, but he wasn't in contention for the win, and he's, in a way, impacting the guys who were. I think that's a problem. And there are, look, it's not like there aren't rules in place. There are rules in place with pace of play. You can be warned. You can be penalized. They did not choose to do so. And I understand it's the Masters. You don't want to have to penalize someone if you don't want to or if you don't necessarily have to. Um, but I thought the pace of play at the end was was a bit concerning. And Brooks's comments, you know, Brooks was was... He's a guy who'll let you know when he's frustrated, and he was very cordial throughout most of these interviews throughout the weekend, even with some of the controversy surrounding him and Liv and everything else. But I'm kind of glad that he let that go and, and let that remark go because it was a little bit unacceptable. And the pace of play concerns, you know, again, there's no easy fix. There's no, I don't think golf wants to get a stopwatch on guys every, every single time they're up in, you know, the way baseball has done. But if you get to the point where it's that much of an issue, Maybe that is what you have to do. Maybe you do pull out the stopwatch. And that's essentially the way it works is if a player gets warned, they can get put, quote-unquote, on the clock, or they can then be penalized if they take too long. I just thought it was uh, something that slightly took away. It wasn't the biggest deal in the world, but it did slightly take away from that last event. And, you know, look, golf rounds can be four or five hours long at the top level. I don't think there's any need for these guys to drag it on any more so than they already did. Um, so that was something that was interesting. And, and Brooks's comments about it, um, 
kind of it's something we were all seeing and Twitter was of course talking about it throughout the round but then for Brooks to go ahead and confirm it and of course you know other players have said it and and Cantlay's not look he's not the only one so I don't want to single him out because there are other guys around the tour look Jordan Spieth has it's it's been something he's worked on and at times and came you know came clean with people and said yeah I'm I'm trying to shorten up my pre-shot routine I know it's very long and so it's something that some guys struggle with, and other guys like Kepka. For you know, to his credit, he kind of gets up there and hits a shot. He doesn't really have a whole lot of. He he has a pre-shot routine that he goes about, but he doesn't take a lot of extra time. And so it's that's one thing when a guy and and when a guy is like Kepka and is very deliberate and very quick with his decisions to make his make and hit his shot, and he has to then play with someone who's not. That's when it starts getting really frustrating because, look, the guy who's taking his time isn't going to be impacted by the guy who's going quickly. We saw it yesterday. Hovland's already ready and hitting his shot, and Cantlay's just moseying along the fairways of Augusta National like it's a uh, a nice Sunday twilight round. But overall, I think that's something that hopefully will be addressed a little bit, and maybe we can see some tweaks, especially at the highest level when guys are trying to win major championships. You don't like to see them held up by slow pace of play. we got to take a timeout. But we'll come back, wrap up the show in our next segment, and uh, get you set up for what you can hear on Crunch Time next. This is the Jordy Holberg Show on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. We here at the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, know you love our shenanigans on and off the air. We want you to help you help us. So go and subscribe to our YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana and turn that bell on so you can get notifications when we post our new content, game recaps, and other. Help us get to 1,000 subscribers and see more of the fun behind the scenes and our after-work mischief at The Game Louisiana on YouTube. Here's three pieces of advice to live by. Never play cards with a guy whose last name is a stake. Don't spit into the wind. And always listen to The Jordy Holberg Show on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to the Jordy Holtberg Show. Dawson Agelow in for Jordy on this Monday edition of the show. We want to remind you we're broadcasting live from the EFCO Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette. EFCO Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. So we've got a few minutes here in our last segment. So I wanted to go ahead and ask James a little bit more. He's been he has had his mock draft pulled up, not not just his Saints mock draft, but the whole NFL first round. So we talked a little bit about the top 10 picks. We talked a little bit about the Saints who are picking at the end of the first round. What about that 10 to 20 range, though, James? Are there some, you know, a couple of guys, maybe just a fit you really like a guy with a certain team? Uh, what's something you like in that range? Nolan Smith, to me, we had talked about him earlier. We would love him to be on the Saints, but no shot. Probably sh- not going to fall that far, right? No shot he falls that far. And in fact, I have him in the top 10. Wow. Okay. I have him at 10 with, with the Eagles because – you're, it's the same thing with kind of Cam Jordan and the Saints. Fletcher Cox isn't getting any younger. Brandon Graham is 35. He's in his mid-30s at this point. You've you've had Derek Barnett and others, but you just moved on from uh, Hassan Reddick. Right. And, and so well, you Nolan needed, Smith, to that point, kind of fits the mold of yep. a speed guy like Hassan Reddick. That that makes a lot of sense. So him at 10. Uh, Tennessee, uh, look, look at more at the Texans. I have the first receiver going off the board at 12 to the Texans. A lot of people like Jackson Smith and Jigba. I do too, but I think the Texans need more of an X receiver guy than more of a Y or a slot receiver. So I have them going to get Quentin Johnston, the TCU From product. TCU, right. So if you have Bryce Young at two and then you go get him 
his number one receiver and Quentin Johnson at 12. You've already got a guy coming back in uh, John Mechie from he, – he's been dealing with cancer. He's been dealing with leukemia. So it's like you can get him back. You just brought in Robert Woods, but Robert Woods is kind of more on the down slope. Right. You've got a couple guys. You just you just brought in Dalton Schultz. So it's like you if you can do that, you have some good weapons and you may be able to compete a little bit. I'm not saying you're going to win the AFC South by any means because you right. got to deal they're with still, Jags. And they're still, yeah, still a long way away there. But I like the Quentin Johnson pick there because that's a guy – and, you know, I try to not fall into those, you know, situations where if you watch a guy a couple of times, you, you get some opinions on him. But I did get a, I, I watched a good bit of TCU football last year, not just their run in the playoffs and then, of course, getting demolished by Georgia. I felt like Quentin Johnson was a guy that wasn't getting quite enough love. So, I, you know, now when I go all the way up to 12 to get him, I'm not sure I'd take him at that spot. But I think he's I think he's got a chance to be one of the best receivers in this class. So I would agree with you there. And, you know, with Houston, what they do at receiver, I think kind of goes along maybe with what they do at quarterback. Are they gonna go out and get, you know, if their if their guy is Bryce Young, well, Bryce Young doesn't necessarily have the biggest arm in the world. Um, so you might try to find a really nice physical intermediate style receiver. Whereas if you got the big armed, you know, Anthony Richardson, let's just say, then maybe you'd really want a down the field speed threat. To, mm-hmm. to be able to use his skill set. So I'd be interested to see if the Texans go one way at quarterback, does it then impact you know where they kind of go with the rest of their draft picks? And I think it probably would. I'm kind of with you. I've been you know feeling like Bryce Young might land in Houston. Um, it, it, I also agree. I, I can't believe I agree with you this much today, Mesh, but I think C.J. Stroud <laughs> in Carolina makes some sense as well. I think that's kind of where I just feel like he's the most complete quarterback in the class. I don't know if Carolina is going to do it, but I think he's the most complete quarterback in the class. Um, so with all those things considered, I don't have a ton of gripes. I, I, I don't think Johnston goes that high, but I personally have a pretty high grade on him myself, so I could see it maybe happening. But, you know, what about anyone else in the NFC South? I think it's – you mentioned how wide open the division is, and we talked a little bit to Sean Fazan today about it. I think it's a great point. It's one of the reasons the Saints have this opportunity to go all in because the division's wide open. Do you think anybody in that division – we've talked a little bit about Carolina. What about Atlanta or the Bucks? Where do you think they go, and do you think it, it makes them contenders right away? Or I, I, I still think both of those teams just have too many questions right now. Yeah, they definitely have a lot of questions, especially at quarterback. I mean, Bucks with Baker Mayfield or Kyle Trask. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And then Atlanta, you got uh, Desmond, Desmond Ritter, Ritter right? but he's very much improving as well. With Atlanta at the eight spot, I don't really do trades in my mock drafts because it's like, right. how am I supposed to predict that? I agree. That? Too much chaos. Uh, I, I have them taking Tyree Wilson. He okay. was kind of one of those guys that could be borderline top five, but he had a little bit of injury issue. And they need edge. They need edge. They got some defensive tackles. They ended up picking up David Onyemata from the Saints, yep. and then they got linebacker help. And you feel okay about their safeties. The biggest thing that they need in my eyes right now, especially in the defense, because that defense has been putrid for them for a while. If you can, like you had mentioned earlier, like you miss on one edge rusher like they did before with, uh, who was it? Oh, I know who you're talking with, about. Uh, too. Tack McKinley. There it is. It's yeah. like, go get, try, well, and, try again. Try, try and go get another one. And you're one. referring, of course, to the Texas Tech edge rusher, right? And, yes. And he has been kind of flying up the boards, though. So I would be interested to see does he go, does he maybe go in the top five because he's a name that's really hot right now. Do you think he's the most complete edge rusher in the class or the best edge rusher in the class? Or, or do, you, do you still like Jalen Carter maybe in, in some of those spots? Uh, maybe a different skill set there, not quite the same. But 
I mean, are we are we counting Will as an edge rusher? Because he's kind of more of an outside. But it yeah, depends on a the guy scheme. Who can do, yeah, a guy who can do multiple different things, though. I just think... I think that Wilson's got a chance to kind of change a front seven. And so I, I would I would be a little nervous if he went to Atlanta, to be honest with you. But oh, yeah. like we've been saying, I think the, the luxury in all this is that the Saints are kind of farther along in the process than any of these teams are. I mean, Tampa's kind of having to fully reset. Like, <laughs> the greatest of all time just retired. Carolina, they're the team I think that could maybe be the most interesting as far as challenging the Saints, just because they played pretty well down the stretch with a skeleton crew at quarterback and elsewhere. So if they get quarterback right, if it's look, if it's C.J. Stroud and maybe they use a, a bridge to get to him with you know Andy Dalton or, or whatever they decide to do there, I think Carolina makes the most sense to challenge the Saints. But like that's where I sit here and I go, look, I don't want to have my expectations through the roof with with the Saints. We're sitting here in April. I don't want to get too far ahead <laughs> of myself. But I'm setting myself up to where I feel like this is going to be a season where you have to win the division. Like it's just going to be right there in front of you. And if you lose it. It's going to look like a failure. Yeah. I think you might be put in that spot. Yeah, I kind of agree with you with that. And then for the Bucks, I had them taking a Bodger Jones out of Georgia. Okay. Because you moved on from your left tackle, Donovan Smith, your yep. longtime left tackle. You might be moving uh, Tristan Wirfs to left, but either way, it's like whoever you have a quarterback, defense is also still looking really good. You still got some nice weapons on offense. To me, beefing up that O-line is going to help them and like try and be in contention. Yeah, and if, if you're going to make Baker work, which I'm not convinced they will, but Baker has you know, shown you that if he gets great protection, then he has the ability to be a you know, better-than-average quarterback at times. But when Baker gets pressured, it's, it's really been downhill for the teams that have had him. So, look, it's all really exciting, and the draft is, I mean, it's closer than we think. Like we said, just we're about to come up on the two-week mark. I believe Thursday will make just two weeks until the start of the NFL draft. So... That is certainly exciting. I um, want to thank everybody involved with the show today. Our guests, we had Sean Fazand of Fox 8. He gave some great insight on the Pelicans and the Saints, as he always does. And then we had Zach Nagy on of LSU Country. Um, Zach giving us everything related to Kim Mulkey's team, Brian Kelly's, and Jay Johnson. We touched on all three of those teams today in that segment, so that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, Overall, I want to thank uh, everybody for letting me fill in here for Jordy on this Monday edition of the Jordy Holtberg Show. Coming up next is going to be Crunch Time with Miguez and our guy over there, James Mesh. Uh, I already heard from Matt. He's going to be talking some Masters and some Pels as well as a couple of other topics in a shortened edition of Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh. So that is coming up next right here on The Game.